0: You are listening to the Unsung Lung Podcast, presented by Alberta Lung. Welcome back to another installment of the Unsung Lung Podcast. As always, my name is Jacob Sperling, and I am so excited to bring you another lesson in lung health. Our guest today is an amazing educator and an award-winning practitioner in her field, but I'll dive more into that after one quick note. I'm excited to share that November is Radon Action Month. I know, I know, I've been berating you about radon information and awareness for the past three months, but it's for good reason. Radon is ridiculously not spoken enough about, and knowledge has to be shared to get it on the map. Somewhat coincidentally, Tackle Radon is entering its final month of the campaign in November. We wrap up Tackle in November to coincide with the Grey Cup and the end of the CFL season. But I do have to say that it, it, it is fitting to end it in the same month as Radon Action Month. With the winter coming, more Albertans will be closing their windows to, sit, to stay warm and cozy. Unfortunately, that means more radon stays in your home and can't escape through summer ventilation, opening windows, etc. So all of us at Alberta Lung are asking each and every listener of this podcast, and for that matter, each and every Albertan, to purchase a test kit if you haven't already done so. It could help save your and your loved one's lives. Now let's move on to today's episode. I am very excited to welcome Tracy Reed on the Unsung Lung podcast. On the show today, we'll be talking about lung disease and gastroesophageal reflux disease, also known as GERD. Tracy is a certified holistic nutritional consultant. She also teaches at the Canadian School of Natural Nutrition, and I referred to her as award-winning at the top of the show because she was the recipient of the 2018 Clinical Excellence Award. Tracy focuses on using food as medicine. When medical and naturopathic sources aren't working, and even if they are to a degree, Tracy champions the use of a proper diet to keep your body happy and healthy. Today we'll be talking about how lung disease and GERD are intimately connected, how GERD can cause and exacerbate different forms of lung disease, and how to combat the side effects to better control any lung disease you may suffer with. So without any further delay, let's get into my discussion with Tracy Reed, Holistic Nutritional Consultant. I am so thrilled to be welcoming Tracy Reed on the Unsung Lung Podcast today. How are you, Tracy? How's your fall going?
1: Good. It's awesome. Um, I didn't know about you guys, uh, but here in Calgary, we have had probably the best fall ever. We're still like in the 20s for temperature.
0: Yeah. Ours has been super nice. Sorry. I didn't even know you were in Calgary. I guess I just clued in that you're in Edmonton. I, <laughs> I have a very selfish self-perception and like everyone's in Edmonton, but that's great. Yeah. No, it, it's been amazing up here as well. I, I joke because my parents just got back from Europe and we, we were actually warmer a lot of the time and they were on the Amalfi coast. So I was like, eh, not a great time to go there because we have really perfect weather here.
1: Yeah. Yeah, for sure.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. So um, obviously, we're here today to talk about lung disease and GERD and everything like that. So but I'm just wondering if before we step into that, if you can tell us what you do in your practice, and maybe a little intro into what a holistic nutritional consultant is. And maybe you can dive into what like a kind of typical workday looks like for you.
1: Yeah, for sure. So um, I think my practice is... Well, I think everybody's practice is probably a little bit unique and we all kind of do different things as nutritional consultants, but I spend a lot of time uh, teaching. So in addition to having a clinical practice, I teach, I do a lot of public speaking. But if we look at the actual clinical practice uh, side of things, um, that would be very much the same as sort of a doctor's visit or a naturopathic visit. So people, before they come to see me, they're asked to fill in a rather long intake form. (laughs) So I have a very detailed uh, history. And then when they come to see me, we go through that in detail. And the reason it's really important for me to have something really, really detailed is that I'm looking for clues uh, as to why they might have the health condition that they do. And I'm looking to understand Uh, underlying contributing factors. So then, um, then we talk about like what some dietary recommendations would be based on, you know, the information that I've been seeing. And then we look at, okay, you've got these recommendations. What does this actually look like for your meals? And what are some of your favorite meals? And how can we build those recommendations? in? so at the end of that first meeting, they walk away with like recipes and all the recommendations that they need. So that's kind of, you know, when I'm in my clinical practice, that's what that looks like.
0: Very cool. Yeah. It sounds, it's kind of sounds like you mentioned, it doesn't, it doesn't sound unlike just a regular doctor's visit and that you have, you have a history and then you kind of just go from there and expand on that. So obviously today we're here to talk about GERD, like I mentioned Um, and we'll get into that, but I'm just wondering if you can touch on some of the other health problems and diseases that you work with as a holistic nutritional consultant, maybe there's probably tons. So maybe the general ones or anything like that.
1: Yeah. So it's funny. It seems to really ebb and flow, um, and then different things come up at different times. So I would say historically, I did a lot of GI stuff. So GERD, bloating, um, even some of the autoimmune conditions related to the GI tracts of celiac Crohn's colitis, that type of thing. More recently, I seem to attract very complex cases where people have more than one diagnosis from their medical doctor. And to give you a sense of maybe like some of the diagnoses that people are struggling with, um, I see often people have anxiety. Like recently, that's been a really big one where a lot of my clients have anxiety. Um, Something that's maybe kind of unique within the profile of clients that I have is that a lot of them have some kind of sensitivity. And so that might be a chemical sensitivity where like if you're exposed to paint fumes or that new car smell or, you know, really any kind of perfume, you start to feel maybe headachy and nauseated but there might be other sensitivities. So you might be sensitive to like temperature changes or weather changes. So a really good example would be people who get migraines when um, there's a weather change. And in Calgary, we see this a lot because we have Chinooks that come in during the winter. So that's like another kind of unique uh, thing, I think within my client profile. And then pain and pain can look so different from person to person right it could be joint pain chest pain like head headaches migraines um so I see a lot of pain related and then still I still see all the GI stuff right the GERD and the bloating and nausea and so yeah that's not really health conditions per se necessarily but yeah that's some of what I'm seeing in my client base
0: very cool i I, I picked out a little piece from there that I found very interesting and in that I'm wondering if you can explain quickly how, how, how you can, I don't know if treat is the right word, but how you combat anxiety with food. That just sounds like such an interesting connection there.
1: It is. And there can be a lot of different underlying factors for anxiety. So again, when I'm doing that intake with clients, I'm looking for those clues. Like what, what do I think might be uh, feeding into the anxiety? So one thing is um, it's called the gut brain axis, And so we know that the health of the gut uh, impacts the brain really, really significantly. And that's actually, it's bi-directional. The, they're kind of the two brains. We have this like, first or second brain in the gut, depending on who you talk to. Um, and so if, I don't know if your audience is familiar with like the gut microbiome, but if the gut microbiome, this these are like millions, trillions actually of microbes that live in our GI tract. If they're not in a healthy balanced state, they communicate information to the brain that indicates that, that indicates like inflammation. And, and so that can be underlying anxiety. Um, but I also see a lot of people who are struggling with anxiety because of a uh, neurotransmitter um, histamine. And most people have heard of histamine in relation to allergies because you take antihistamines. They may not know that histamine can impact brain function. And so again, yeah, lots of um, underlying reasons as to why or contributing factors as to why someone might have anxiety so it's kind of digging digging through the information I have to try to figure that out
0: yeah very interesting I I know that's obviously not lung health related but in our climate today mental health is so important so and it affects everything it affects your lung health it affects your Affects pain and affects everything. So I just thought that was super interesting. But moving on to today's topic a little bit, I love to know from a professional like yourself how you would describe. Oh man, I got to get this right. Gastroesophageal reflux disease.
1: So, you know, GERD. I think most people would describe GERD based on that symptom profile, right? Like you've got that feeling of burning, maybe pain in the chest, maybe that burning's like higher up at the back of the throat or you have that like sour, acidic taste in your mouth. But from a practitioner perspective, I am thinking about the pathophysiology of GERD. Like what is the process uh, in the body that is associated with the development of GERD? And inflammation is a really big part of that. And then with GERD, what's actually really interesting is that uh, you can actually, even though everybody associates GERD with this like acidity, you can actually have low stomach acidity or high stomach acidity, and it can manifest itself in the same way. So kind of teasing that apart is really important as well.
0: Right, for sure. And so I guess as kind of, Uh, follow-up to that question and and you you mentioned manifestation so how does how does the disease itself manifest and is it a genetic condition can it be brought about by poor nutrition How, how does it kind of start i guess
1: so um again there are there are different ways that it can start um the health of that gut microbiome again is really really important um the gut microbiome has a really big role in regulating inflammation in the body. And if there's inflammation, that can be underlying GERD. But then, and this is kind of where my area of expertise has moved towards, is um, histamine and mast cell involvement. And so mast cell, that's M-A-S-T, like the mast of a ship. Mast cells are immune cells. And they, they're the cells that release histamine. And so sometimes we have sort of mast cell uh, involvement uh, where they're releasing too much histamine. And this ties into GERD because histamine signals stomach acid production. And so if your mast cells are not working normally or kind of acting inappropriately, and maybe they're releasing too much histamine, then that can create too much stomach acidity. And this conversation is actually really, really relevant when we're looking at lung health as well. So there's a really, really strong um, correlation there with the mast cell and histamine involvement.
0: For sure. Before we move on to the lung health aspect of this, um, I have a general question and I'm not sure if you get this all the time. Um, is gastroesophageal reflux disease GERD synonymous with acid reflux disease or, or, or is it the exact same thing or is that not even, uh, yeah. Term? Yeah.
1: So yeah, it's, it's the same thing. So, okay. um, Gastroesophageal is just, it's referring to like stomach and esophagus. So that's like the tube that you know you're swallowing your food down through to the stomach. Yeah. So, same, same thing.
0: Okay. I just wanted to clarify that because I've heard that term before and I didn't know if it was different or the same, but thank you for clarifying that.
1: Yeah. So, really, we've got like GERD, acid reflux. Sometimes people just call it reflux, other times heartburn. And it's, it's just all all the the same same thing. thing. Yeah.
0: Perfect. Yeah. I, yeah. Okay. So, uh, <laughs> uh, obviously, this is a lung health podcast, as we mentioned. So, I'm wondering if you could kind of draw the connection between lung disease and GERD, um, if that's not too general of a question.
1: Yes. No, that is, it's an excellent question. So, again, when we're looking at pathophysiology of disease, like how is what's happening in the body that's actually contributing to this disease? we see that potentially, I'm not going to say that with everybody who has a lung condition and has GERD, but potentially the same things are uh, contributing to both conditions. And so this goes back again to histamine and mast cell involvement. And with um, lung conditions, so things like COPD or pulmonary fibrosis, or even asthma, potentially, again, not always with asthma, but we see that there's there's too much histamine that's being released. And okay, maybe I'm gonna backtrack a little bit here. So these mast cells, the cells that release histamine in the body, we have them everywhere in the body, but we have the most of them in like barrier tissue. And barrier tissue includes our skin, it includes our lungs, and it includes our GI tract. So if you understand that you have a lot of mast cells naturally occurring in the lungs and the GI tract, what I'm about to say is going to make more sense. So you've got a lot of these mast cells in your lungs, in your GI tract. Again, if they're just not working, they're not acting appropriately the way they should, they could be releasing more histamine. And so the research supports this, in fact, and often what the research is supporting is that the mast cells, you may have more of them than would be normal, um, or that they're they're again not really acting the way they should. So they're they're activated when they shouldn't be. So they're releasing more histamine, and in the lungs, this release of histamine can uh, be what's leading to the disease progression in the lungs. And same thing, you know, I just talked about how with GERD, you have histamine that's released from the mast cells and that stimulates stomach acid secretion. In the lungs, there's, in in addition to histamine, these mast cells, they actually, they're phenomenal. Like they're, they're so beautifully complex. They have, in, in addition to histamine, people are saying that they have over a thousand different things that they can release So these are just different chemicals that they can release. And so when we look at lung disease, what we're seeing is that in addition to histamine, they're releasing other chemicals that are involved in disease progression, right? So in fibrosis, right? In that fibrosis, that scarring formation. So um, I I forgot what the original question was.
0: Just about the connection between right lung, lung disease and GERD that's fair
1: yeah, I can get on so tangents, yeah the connection is possibly that your mast cells if you're struggling with both of these conditions that your mast cells are not working the way they should right. and that they are doing this inappropriate release of all these substances including histamine
0: Okay. Perfect. So (laughs) that's, that's very fair. I I love the, the long description. It's better than a short one. So I'm trying to wrap my head around it in that you have these mast cells that aren't functioning exactly how they should. So my next question is, and I'm not, I think the answer was hidden in there somewhere, but does it often happen that GERD, that you get GERD because you have a lung disease or the other way around, or they're not really related. You just have these, these, um, improperly functioning mast cells and they're in your GI tract and your lungs as well?
1: So the, the, the two conditions can exasperate one another. Uh, I don't think one leads to the development of the other, but certainly because the mast cells release a lot of chemical compounds that are inflammatory, Um, that is certainly one way they can exasperate one another. But then with, and this is probably the most common conversation, would be that with GERD, as that acidity comes up through the esophagus, you can aspirate it. So you can breathe it in. And that can really irritate the lining of the lungs and uh either, you know, cause a flare in symptoms when that happens, or just exasperate it overall. Um, and I mean, the lungs and the GI tract are so intimately connected actually, because the, the tissue is very similar. And, you know, I talked about the gut microbiome a little bit, but the lungs have a microbiome. Um, and we just see that when either lung tissue is compromised, that that sort of transcends into GI tissue or the other way around where when GI tissue is sort of compromised, Um, then that we also see it showing up in the lungs. And that's just because the human body, like we're a whole organism. And so if we have, say, for example, inflammatory markers being released by cells in the GI tract, those get into the bloodstream and they travel all over the body. And so then they can impact other tissue in the body as well.
0: Yeah, for sure. It goes along kind of with my discussion I had um earlier on an earlier episode with Jeremy Saunders, who has cystic fibrosis and how his his cystic fibrosis is both a GI tract issue and a lung health issue. We can't we can't think of them as separate systems. Obviously we can, but they're so intimately connected.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is where um, you know, I think working with some kind of holistic practitioner has benefits in this realm because our medical system is specialized, you know, which has some great benefits, but if you go see your GI doctor, they're only looking at the GI tract. If you go see, you know, like somebody who's looking at your lungs, right. Again, like it's, it's a little bit segregated that way. So you don't often have doctors that really understand those connections and are trying to address them.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Perfect. So in kind of turning to a more uh, specific lung disease now or specific lung diseases uh, in my research of lung disease and GERD, I found that it is one of the most common causes of chronic co- chronic cough specifically, and a potential risk factor for the exacerbation of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, as you mentioned COPD. So I'm just wondering if you can touch on this and if that claim has merit in and of itself.
1: Um, so yes, GERD definitely can show up as chronic cough. And this is one of the lesser known symptoms. So people understand, oh, I've got, you know, if I've got chest pain or burning in my um, chest, or if I feel that burning higher up or have that, you know, sour acidic taste, like that's what people think of when they think of reflux, but coughing is not something sort of a chronic cough is not something people would typically associate with GERD. And when you're coughing chronically, this would, and that's your only symptom of GERD. We would think of that more as like a silent type of GERD, right? It's not those really visible symptoms necessarily, but yes, it can show up as this uh, chronic cough. And what that cough is telling you is that there's some irritation in the esophagus and upper airway. Um... And so, again, if we're looking at that in relation to COPD, yeah, again, it's the symptoms may not be as obvious that you have GERD, but definitely that can be a sign and can be uh, exacerbating um, the COPD through that uh, aspiration.
0: Right. And uh, in in a similar question to the aspiration part, I was thinking about it earlier and then you brought up aspiration and I forgot it, but this might be kind of, I don't don't know how, how to word it. I guess gross to some people but can can the acid reflux actually instead of being aspirated down your windpipe can some of that acid actually itself in I guess liquid form go in there and cause even more harm than just being aspirated or is that not really a well so it's it's
1: actually the same thing like the it's aspiration the yeah the aspiration is where you are actually breathing in um the the particles yeah of the of the stomach contents
0: right. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. Yeah, that that's what I wanted to know. So, kind of, we'll uh, we'll go a little bit selfish on my end, and I have a question for my partner who who has um, GERD acid reflux. She calls it heartburn. Um, so, uh, she luckily she I I believe she never actually tastes acid in her mouth. From what she told me, she just feels it in her chest. Um. I lost my place. (laughs) So I'm just wondering if this can still be a risk factor for lung disease, even though she never tastes acid and it never reaches a point where she can taste it.
1: Yeah. So again, when we start to understand that these two conditions aren't causational, right, they're not causing one another, but that it's the same sort of underlying pathophysiology, potentially. Um, The the concern of like acid uh, impacting her lungs, certainly that potential for irritation can occur. And we we can actually see that even beyond the lungs, like the whole respiratory tract. So that would include like the nasal passageway. So sometimes people will have like sinus or nasal uh, inflammation and irritation um, because it's, it's still coming up and irritating that. So as a as a contributing factor to disease progression, I don't know that I can give you a definitive answer on that. Certainly that irritation part um, is potential. And then again, if these other underlying pathophysiologies, like if, you know, again, the mast cells are activated um, or, you know, something else is happening that we haven't discussed, that irritation can certainly just, again, exasperate things. But as a, positive factor um I, I don't believe it would be like causative in nature
0: okay very fair and kind of as a part two to that question just going back to the beginnings of of her own uh GERD process this isn't very lung related but I I'm gonna ask it anyways um so she as I said she has heartburn even though she never actually tastes acid I'm not sure if that's common or not so I'm just wondering what would cause that, that pain, is it just, it, it's the reflux that happens and it, and there's pain receptors in the esophagus or. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
1: So that pain is, uh, is your esophagus is way of communicating.
0: Right.
1: <laughs> yeah. Hey, something's not right here. And your esophagus is, is not really designed to handle that acid. Um, so there's, on the top of the stomach is a sphincter muscle that's supposed to stay closed and keep that acid from going up into the esophagus. So unlike the stomach, the stomach has this really thick mucosal layer to protect it from that acidity. The esophagus does not. So when acid is going up, yeah, that's why people get like that chest pain or that kind of what they call heartburn feeling, right? Where it just feels like something's kind of burning or irritated.
0: Okay. Very fair um before we wrap things up i just have a couple more questions some lung related some not um so i guess the first one lung health related you mentioned at the top of the show the diseases you work with um specifically in revol- uh, revolving revolving gird and lung disease so i'm just wondering if you can touch on again the general what you see and obviously i mentioned copd and chronic cough but are there other ones that some of our listeners should should kind of hone in on if they have a specific lung disease that you often see GERD as a contributing factor to, or that maybe not a contributing factor, but they have, they may also have GERD if they, it's very likely that they do.
1: Yeah. So pulmonary fibrosis, um, especially sort of the idiopathic uh, form sometimes with asthma as well. And so I actually with asthma, I do often see a correlation. Um, and this is somewhat reflective of, I think where my own practice has gone, right. I've really come to specialize in like mast cell health. How do we stabilize those mast cells? So those are the people I'm attracting right now in my practice. So I might be seeing more of these correlations than I think other practitioners, um, might. And, And you just said something too, that I should probably clarify a little bit as a holistic nutrition professional. I don't treat disease. Um, I don't actually even work with disease as so food um, has this really kind of super cool, amazing ability (laughs) to alter our own biochemistry. So, as a practitioner working with food and i work with some supplements as well but what i'm doing is trying to change the body's biochemistry and so it doesn't matter what the disease is because i'm trying to figure out you know again with that like thorough intake that i do i'm trying to figure out okay what's what are the imbalances in the body where's the inflammation showing up how do we target our food to address that underlying you know, imbalance or these biochemical um, processes in the body specifically. So it's different from like that medical approach of treatment, because the medical approach of treatment is what can we give this person to manage their symptoms or to slow the progression of the disease. And with food, we're still like able to slow progression, but we're not looking at that like Oh, you can eat this one food. <laughs>
0: right.
1: And right? It's really different from pharmaceutical. So I just kind of wanted to draw um, attention to that for your listeners sure. because it's it's not a treatment, like food is not a treatment protocol. It's trying to correct those like imbalances in the body. And it's and it's fascinating because the body, we're so complex. And when we look at food, food shares the same complexity. And uh, so it's, yeah, it's like I said, it's just super cool <laughs> the way
0: Absolutely. Uh,
1: it can be used.
0: Yeah, for sure. I, as a, as a follow-up to that one, I, I just thought of this in my head. I don't know how, why I didn't think of it before, but uh, as relating to the biochemistry of the body and what you eat, do you subscribe to the notion of the insanely general phrase, you are what you eat? Or is it more way more complicated than that?
1: It certainly is more complicated, but yeah, in a way, like, yes, it's, it's a nice statement to kind of like, if you're eating, um, you know, whole natural food, you're going to have a whole functioning body to, you know, to some extent, like there's, there's so many other factors other than diet that come into play and there's, you know, stress and quality of sleep and, relationships in your life right there's all these other things that are really really important as well but food we like it it's so important like people think oh i can exercise a bad diet away for example but you can't mm-hmm. <laughs> you could you know conversely like you can eat to make up for lack of exercise <laughs> but not kind of the other way around um yeah, I don't know if that answers your question.
0: <laughs> yeah, it does. I, it just came. It just came to my head. I was thinking about kind of general bumper sticker like things that relate it, to food. Yeah, and I was I was wondering if that yeah. carries any and, merit.
1: You know, actually, on that topic, here's something that I find really, really fascinating. Because if you're reading about food, um, you know, through media, so let's say, for example, you read. Uh, you know, tomatoes have antioxidants. So they're really great antioxidant sources. And yes, that is definitely true. But a tomato is not going to be healthy for everybody. And this is where food becomes really, really powerful. Because if you're able to understand which foods work for your body, uh, that has really profound implications. And again, so if, you know, like if we go back to this like pathophysiology idea, like what's contributing, what functions in the body are not working that are contributing to your disease progression. We know I'll use mast cells as an example here because we've been talking about them. So something that your listeners may be familiar with because we hear so much of it right now is like eat, Eat yogurt because it's really great in probiotics. Eat sauerkraut, it's really great in probiotics. But those foods actually have the potential to trigger mast cell activation. And so again, foods that are like touted as being really, really healthy for people, they're not going to be healthy for everybody. And another really good example is bone broth. Uh, So bone broth is really popular and again, for most people, it's a really good source of amino acids. It's a really good source of collagen. And interestingly, so collagen is like, I, I think of it as our body's scaffolding. So like our all our other tissues kind of built on top of it. So a lot of people supplement with collagen. Um, and from a lung perspective, again, like collagen is the scaffolding that the lungs are built on. But collagen can also be one of the things that can trigger the mast cell piece. So a lot of people are, you know, doing the collagen, the bone broth, all of these fermented foods. But when there's mast cell involvement where the mast cells are not acting appropriately, those are foods that everybody thinks are really healthy for them and they can actually be contributing to their symptoms. And I had to learn that the hard way. (laughs) because I'm one of the people that, uh, and I don't, other than having had like exercise induced asthma and asthma in my teens, I do not currently have a lung condition, but I do have a mast cell condition. And so when I was, you know, I finished nutrition school and I was like, I'm going to do everything right. I'm going to make my own fermented foods and my sauerkraut and yogurt and eat all of this stuff. And I was developing new symptoms. So i have a very personal <laughs> connection to like the healthy foods that can actually make you sick
0: <laughs> right yeah so it's uh, just as a super basic summary it's very individualized is what mm-hmm. you're getting at mm-hmm. and, and and if you if you notice you're having trouble with foods or something the best isn't to just go online and see what are the best foods for for gut microbiome or something like that it's to get an individualized support system
1: yes yeah
0: okay perfect so uh, one final question before we have a general wrap-up question i'm interested in the connection i i myself have very severe allergies um and i'm taking allergy shots right now to kind of curb that and you, we've been talking about histamines throughout this entire show which is very interesting so i'm wondering and you and you specifically made mention to the fact that not to confuse histamines only with allergies they're connected to your gut as well so i'm just wondering if you have a mass cell problem. Would that correlate to actual allergies and like stuffiness and seasonal allergies and dogs and cats and that kind of stuff, as well as um gut problems? Or is is it kind of like is there a division between the two?
1: No, so again, you know, we're where these whole organisms, everything is connected. So Yes, we we most medical doctors like their what they learn in medical school is like histamine and allergy connection, right? Like that, so that's really really well understood. But histamine, so we've talked about it in relation to GERD. Uh, lots of research looking at it in relation to lung conditions as well, um, and. There's the, the research is actually phenomenal, like linking it to Parkinson's disease and, um, like rheumatoid arthritis, like it's, there's so many conditions that have a role. Insomnia is another one that would be really big. So if we're looking, so here's one of the things I do as a practitioner, if I'm trying to figure out, like, is there a histamine component, um, to somebody's health condition or a mast cell component is I want to look through their whole history. And I, we tend to see, here's some things we tend to see. So one, to have this mast cell involvement or kind of this like more global histamine involvement, you have to have symptoms that are Occurring in more than one body system. So, for example, like if you have allergies, then we would want to see, like, okay, is there a GI thing, right? Since we've been talking about GERD, there may not be. Are there uh, maybe other skin conditions? So, maybe like hives show up every once in a while and you don't know why. Maybe there's eczema that comes and goes. Um, Or are there brain associated symptoms? Uh, So maybe you've got brain fog, you know, that comes and goes and you're not sure why. Maybe you have that occasional migraine. And we can kind of so with again, mast cells are everywhere in the body. And when we look at people who have mast cell involvement with their health conditions, we're looking for these patterns where, again, like specifically kind of histamine, like are we seeing histamine-mediated symptoms showing up in different parts of the body at different times in their life? Because what we tend to see is things like wax and wane. And so I just earlier mentioned, like I had asthma in my teens and I had sort of exercise induced asthma and cold induced asthma. Um, And occasionally now I will still get like exercise or cold induced asthma. So that's a really good example of something that has come and gone. And I don't, it's not chronic, it's not ongoing. So again, to like, To sort of connect like, okay, I've got allergies, you know, is there a bigger issue going on here or is it just isolated to allergies? right? So we're just looking at, are there other symptoms that have maybe historically come and gone uh, in different parts of the body?
0: Right. Perfect. That, no, that's very interesting. One of the things that I love about hosting this show is I learn something new every time and I'd never heard of mast cells before. And that's probably important for me considering I have very bad allergies. Like one of my nostrils is always plugged and I also have terrible stomach. So those two must be connected somehow.
1: Yeah. And so to put that in perspective, you know, you just said you've never heard of mast cells before. This is a, a fairly new area um, of, you know, research and understanding. So I am diagnosed with a health condition called mast cell activation syndrome. So my mast cells are sort of chronically activated and can go into a state of like flare pretty quickly. And so the, the diagnostic criteria for that, for mast cell activation syndrome, sometimes also shortened to MCAS, That was only established by the World Health Organization in 2012. So that's only 10 years old. And it typically takes like sort of the research part of health conditions typically takes about 15 years to make its way into medical practice. Most doctors right now still have no understanding of mast cell involvement there are, but it is growing really, really rapidly. So we're starting to see doctors that are, you know, getting the education that they need about this. Um, And there was a a research study done in 2017, uh, in Germany. And that research study um, came out with the seven, that 17% of the world's population, or I'll say the, the developed world's population, um, could potentially have mast cell activation syndrome. So that's huge, seventeen percent. Right? If you're sitting with like six or seven other people, that means one person in that group is likely to have this mast cell activation part. Um, so the the practitioners, the doctors that are specializing in this right now, they're saying it is very common and very underrecognized.
0: For sure. Well, I'm glad we have a little bit of a platform today to get it out there. So we'll have to spread it to some physicians and get get the knowledge out. So as as a general wrap up question, I'm just wondering what kind of nutritional advice you would give to our listeners who suffer with lung disease. And I know it's hard because as we mentioned, it's very individualized person to person, patient to patient. But is there a general advice you can give pass along to our listeners?
1: Yes. So I would say if your listeners today are listening to this and they have both the lung condition and the GERD piece in particular, then to start thinking like, do I have mast cell involvement in this? And so then from a dietary perspective, um, as I mentioned Stay away from the fermented foods. (laughs) Do not eat yogurt and sauerkraut, kombucha, um, you know, kimchi, all of these foods that are so um, often touted to be uh, healthy. And again, for most people, they are. Um, You don't do the bone broth. Um, And then there are other foods. So the reason those foods are so problematic is they're really high in histamine. And so histamine, in addition to actually contributing to your symptoms, it can also actually stimulate the mast cells to dump even more histamine and more of these chemical mediators. So there are some other foods that are really high in histamine as well. Alcohol is one of those. And so, you know, there's really no situation that I would recommend alcohol as a nutrition practitioner, but for this situation, particularly not. And then um, anything that's aged, because the aging process also produces more histamine. So when I say aging, like I think like aged cheeses, things like salamis, you know, those have been aged, um, even canned meat, right? It's just sitting in there for a long period of time. And f- and fish in particular, fish can actually be really high histamine as well. Um, Like processed and packaged food in general is going to be quite high histamine. And then there are some foods, again, that people think might be really healthy for them. Spinach is really high in histamine. So instead of eating spinach, I would suggest people like choose something like arugula. Tomatoes are really high in histamine. And tomatoes are a tricky one because, you know, people love their pasta sauces and their ketchup, and all these things that, you know, we, we, yeah, we're using as sort of a tomato base. Um, but there are other sauces that can have that same kind of consistency that you can use. Uh, bacon is another, like that's an aged meat. Um, but, you know, other pork products are going to be great. Chocolate. Chocolate, sadly. So chocolate is another food that normally, I would actually really be advocating for its health benefits. It's it's really high in polyphenols, which are antioxidant, it's really high in magnesium, but chocolate's also really high in histamine. So those would be Some of the oh and citrus, citrus fruits are quite high in histamine. So again, for you know the people who do have a lung condition and do have GERD, like specifically this subset of people, those would be some of the foods to think about, like replacing, finding other options for. Um, But foods that I love, foods that people should be consuming in abundance, would be all of those cruciferous vegetables. So that includes things like cabbages. Uh, cauliflower, broccoli, Brussels sprouts, kohlrabi, rutabaga, turnips. Like those are all really, really brilliant. Um, and they actually have some really important compounds that can help uh, like stabilize mast cells. Um, blueberries, blackberries, cherries are all going to be really, really brilliant. I love mango. If people, you know, like the sweet tropical fruits, mango is going to be a really, really good one. Um, and what else can I add to that, that I think would be really? Oh, pea shoots, pea shoots actually contain an enzyme that breaks down histamine. Wow. And so they're not, uh, like super common. They've really gained popularity in the last few years. So if you want to try pea shoots, they're so delicious they're, they're like, if you grow a pea plant, it's just a little shoot, that's a few inches long and you can find them often at farmer's markets, at health food stores. They have that like fresh, sweet kind of pea taste. And they're a really nice addition to salads. And I add them to everything, soups and stews. Like mm-hmm. I just, when they're fresh, just chop them in. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> That
0: was a long answer. No, it's very cool. I I didn't think I I feel like our listeners kind of got like a little mini free advice session from you today. So that's perfect. But that that doesn't take away from the fact that if they are having problems themselves, you need to get individualized support. And so uh, along those lines, I know that you're releasing a book soon or you have. Uh, It
1: should be coming out right away. Well, hopefully right away. still with the design team. Yeah. So this, um, as I mentioned, I have been diagnosed with this condition called mast cell activation syndrome. And even before I had that diagnosis, I was seeing clients who had been given this diagnosis. And I realized at the time that there really were not a lot of resources available and that people who are struggling with mast cell involvement, they they can present, like every single person will present differently, have a different set of symptoms and they will have different food compounds that they might uh, be struggling with in addition to histamine and food. So really, really complex from a dietary perspective. And again, no resources out there So then I got the diagnosis as well. And that was sort of the impetus to finally go, okay, like a resource needs to be put together and awareness is really growing. So it seems like a really good time to get a resource together. So with another colleague of mine, uh, her name's Luca Simmons, we have put a book together and the book is both a resource guide and a cookbook. And so the resource part, includes things like what questions should you be asking your doctor? You know, what, uh, what kind of testing should you be asking for? What are other lifestyle factors that you need to be considering? Um, And then the cookbook part is actually really, really unique and different from anything that has ever existed in the past, because it is, um, the recipes are low histamine. And the low histamine diet has actually been around for decades. But we also factored in like gut health because the health of the microbiome is so important. And then for our recipes, we also have variations uh, for things like low oxalate or low salicylate, or if you have an autoimmune condition as well, because again, some people react to other food compounds as well. So we wanted people to be able to open this book and regardless of what diagnosis, what health condition you had if mast cells were underlying it, that you could customize it and uh, customize the recipes for yourself. So it's been a labor of love. We've been working on it for a couple of years now. And yeah, it's with the design team. Um, And then once that's done, it goes to print. So we're anticipating uh, November for its release.
0: Perfect. So uh, just so our listeners can find it, if they're interested, can you uh, give us the title and where, where they can find it?
1: Yes. So the title is Histamine Haven, uh, because we're we're trying to create like safety in the body is basically that concept of Haven. Um, so you can go to our website, which is histaminehaven.com and we're actually right now we're doing a pre-sale so you can pre-purchase the book and then as soon as it's ready it'll get mailed out to you so it can be purchased right now once it's actually been printed and is out uh, again you can still get it through the website histaminehaven.com but it will also be available through all the book retailers online and in store
0: perfect amazing thank you thank you so much for that thank you for all your advice today so before I, I I end our interview, I'm I'm just wondering if you can maybe give our listeners where they can find you specifically if they want to reach out and maybe book an appointment and, and get some further advice. And yeah, just give yourself and and your your practice a plug.
1: So there's two ways actually people can reach me. So um, the first one is just at tracyreed.ca. So tracy is with an EY and Reed is R E E D. So tracyreed.ca. So that would be the website where you can like find the clinic information if you wanted to schedule an appointment. Um, But I also have this Histamine Haven website with my colleague, Luca. So that is histaminehaven.com. And that is actually where I would recommend people start because there are free resources on the website. So there's information there that they could use as a starting point uh, if they're just like, you know... I'm kind of interested in this. I want to explore this a little bit further to, you know, maybe see if I can figure out whether this is actually a part of what's going on in my body.
0: Amazing. Perfect. Well, I've learned so much today. I know I'm so excited and I'm excited to pass along some information to my partner and she'll be happy to learn some stuff. But yeah, I'm sure everyone we'll be super excited to learn more about the gut and and how it connects to lungs and everything like that. So again, thank you, Tracy, for being on the show today. And I guess with that, I'll just send us right through to the outro. I have to say, if I wasn't in law school, I'd be some kind of scientist because I truly love science. My undergraduate degree was, oddly enough, in science, technology, and society. A very weird one, but I loved it. So that discussion with Tracy definitely scratched my metaphorical science itch what a great conversation her knowledge on everything food and how it affects the body is truly amazing so before we wrap up today's show i'd just like to touch on my three concluding thoughts from the interview the first is about the new thing that i learned today being mass cells and i think it's very cool how these cells release histamine and how histamine not only affects allergic responses But also gut health as well and myself as I mentioned being allergic to a whole swath of things food and and environmentally related I only uh, correlated histamines with allergies and it's very interesting to think of how histamines can actually affect GERD which therefore uh, affects reflux which can affect our lungs so it, it just goes into a cyclical area where where histamines can affect so many different parts of the body, and I think that's super interesting. My second concluding thought is about the interconnectedness of GERD and lung disease. When Tracy mentioned how the aspiration of acidic substances from your stomach into your lungs can negatively affect many different lung conditions, that really got me thinking again about what we've talked about since the beginning of this show, in that our entire body is a system And even though this is obviously a lung health show, we can't focus solely on that system because to do so would be completely ignoring other bodily systems that contribute to the health as well as the detriment of our lungs. My third and final concluding point is generally about how food contributes to our overall and specifically our lung health. When Tracy was listing off all the foods that negatively affect GERD and the ones that actually help reduce reflux it put into perspective the tangible effects that eating proper foods for each specific health condition can have and it also goes uh, it also goes into saying how individualized help is needed in that while tracy did give some foods that are and are not good for reflux each person and each person's gut health and what they need is obviously so individualized, and that goes down to things like allergies and just general body composition that that is so different from person to person. One person might be lactose intolerant, one person might be celiac, and depending on your food tolerances, that will change your food what, what your food plan will look like, especially if, if you have something like GERD. So. Yeah, I think that's just, it's incredibly interesting in in how food contributes to overall health. And I, I can't thank Tracy enough for coming on today to explain some of that. Okay, so that wraps up my concluding thoughts for this episode of the Unsung Lung Podcast. Before we sign off today, the Alberta lung program that I'd like to highlight is our pediatric CPAP program. This program allows us to donate new CPAP machines to babies and their families who can't otherwise afford it, so they're able to leave hospital and live happy, normal baby lives sooner than they otherwise could. I use the specific word, allow, because without your help and donations, this program would not be possible. So please, please, please take a look over our website at www.ablung.ca and consider donating. We'd be so appreciative, and it would go a long way to ensuring that programs like this can continue on for many years to come. Okay, well, I'd just like to say that I'm about talked out for the day, and that's saying something, so we'll wrap up the show right about now. But first, as always, just remember to breathe.